0: Welcome to this episode of Profess Hearst, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature all discussed with the perspective of women's issues and feminism.
1: I'm Allegra, and I don't have very many nice things to say today, but I promise we will end on a high note.
0: Or at least we'll try. We will. I'm Misty, and I'm going to just fully agree with you. This is going to be a rough episode. You can tell from the title that we're not here
1: to talk about rainbows and ponies or movies or TV shows. And before we get started, we do want to say that we're going to talk about lots of things that people may find disturbing or upsetting, including sexual assault, sexual assault investigations, violence, hate crimes, and other sensitive topics. And you can tell from that warning that we are going to talk about some pretty serious stuff and some pretty
0: not... This is going to be a bummer. Yeah, that's the best way to say it. But first, let's But it, but a necessary conversation. Yes.
1: And that's the first thing we want to say is why spend time talking about bad stuff. Um, we th- want to believe and we do believe that our purpose mostly is to help people and make people generally happier and more satisfied in their lives. So there are a few reasons why you want to talk about bad things sometimes. Obviously, not all the time. Um, there are things that we can't and shouldn't forget. They're topics that are vital, valuable, and sometimes things that we can actually change by voting or by behaving differently.
0: Or just by changing your mindset. Yes. And acknowledging that women have not always been believed. Yeah. Have not always been listened to. And I think it's getting better-ish. No. Uh. I mean, I'm comparing from, like, the 1950s. Another reason that
1: we want to talk about things like this is that women who experience stuff like this aren't alone, and to ignore these topics is to kind of... Make it seem like you're alone when you go through an experience like this. And the truth is they're shared experiences and that there are lots of people working on women's behalves and there are lots of resources to help women in these situations. They deserve to be recognized, remembered, and advocated for. And if we just don't talk about things that make us sad then we can't recognize or advocate for women who experience these things. And we can't make it better. Right. There are some things that we will discuss today that Missy has in the notes that I had no clue about and probably some things I'll discuss that Missy had no clue about. And now that we are learning it, we will be better able to
0: help or to spread information. I think when you hear a lot of this stuff, your first immediate reaction is going to be outrage or anger. Yes. And I think that's normal. And I think it's necessary. Uh, yeah. And whatever response you have,
1: you're entitled to. Absolutely. But we can't just be outraged. Right. We, we can't, have to go one more step. We can't just be sad about the state of the world. We have to be informed, advocate, volunteer, support, discuss, teach. Or
0: at the very least,
1: empathize.
0: And be knowledgeable. Even
1: if you don't end up donating money or time to a charity, even if you don't change how you vote, even if you don't change how you spend your time or money, we do hope that we can help change how some people feel, how they treat other people, how they navigate the world,
0: and how well they remember to be gentle with each other. And maybe even just change the language around some things because language matters. And we're going to talk about that a lot today.
1: And the other thing is there's this element of there's this part of me that just wants to keep people in check. (laughs) And I just want to say, like, we see what you're doing, whether it's good or bad. We see it. Your people can't hide Sexual assault allegations forever, forever, right? right? We see what you're doing, and well, one so, just shining the light is all. Yes, a whole new thing. And we're gonna talk about a variety of things. We're gonna talk about um the media. We're gonna talk about police. We're gonna talk about books and TV shows. We're gonna talk about women who are veterans. Lots of topics, um, because unfortunately, lots of things are really terrible. Uh, Something that happened last week that is pretty terrible is that Cokie Roberts died. That makes my heart sad. And she was a female journalist who started in the 70s Mm -hmm. reporting on Congress and the White House. And she did a lot to support and mentor other female journalists. And you can imagine being a political reporter in the 70s as a female was not easy to do. No, it was not. And so once she had power and authority, she turned around and used it to bring women up behind her and she died
0: recently so I can remember being like a freshman in college and just hearing her voice yeah on NPR like driving yeah to campus so we might as well uh just jump right into Brett Kavanaugh oh man fine upstanding gentleman that we put on the Supreme Court um where do you want to start with this one because there is a lot we can S- dig into here. So
1: I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about him because most this is probably, of all the things we're going to talk about, the thing people know the most about. There are new allegations. They, well, were, they were reported on in the New York Times, and then the New York Times changed the context of the allegation. So they didn't retract their statement. They didn't issue a correction. They just said, we couldn't substantiate this in the way we usually like to. And then lots of other media outlets took that as an opportunity to discredit all of the allegations ever made against Brett Kavanaugh, because the New York Times and their diligence's ethical reporters said, we got to change one thing about the context of the story. So, even though that's not great, when a newspaper has to come back and re-say something they said in a previous edition, it does not in any way discredit any of the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. And one of our members of Congress has just started an initiative to have him impeached, which I've I'm never heard of a Supreme Court justice. It's being happened
0: one other time. One other time. Um, there was an impeachment movement, but the person was not removed, and that was Samuel Chase in 1803. Okay. So it's been a minute. We definitely needed a history professor to tell us that. (laughs) So, Uh, yeah. Um, I do want to talk
1: about Jalea Jamar. She was a transgender woman in Kansas City who was murdered a few weeks ago. And that is the 19th transgender woman murdered in this country this year since January. And we are in September. Denali buries Stuckey. In Charleston, was found dead in July on the shoulder of a road. And jalia Jamar was a mother and was shot to death in Kansas City. And those are
0: just the two most recent murders of transgender women. And then in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where we are, mm-hmm. we've had, I think, three, maybe four now in the past year. Mm-hmm. So, Not even year, I'm sorry, since January. Yes,
1: yes. So it is a pattern. I don't know how else to describe it, but, and I don't know how to address it other than, I mean, we need broad spectrum changes in the way people discuss trans community members, right? They're, They're your neighbors, they're your colleagues. I mean, we just have to overhaul The way that people talk about and treat transgender human beings. Is
0: that this is at least making news coverage. Barely. Barely. Yeah. But I I wonder if five years ago, if each one of these would have been so localized that we would have in Dallas not heard of this Mm -hmm. one in North Carolina. So I think just the beginning of this conversation Mm -hmm. is an important moment. Yeah. But man, we got a long way to go. Yes,
1: and I mean this is not the nineteen is just transgender women. It's not including uh, who are murdered, not right. including people who are attacked, assaulted, d- discriminated against, not
0: including all of the hate crimes committed against every other. Mm-hmm. Uh, mem- and yeah, and the domestic violence yes. that their that community is much more likely to experience. Yes. I mean, all of the statistics here point to that community being. One Very that vulnerable. Is in, yes, 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 in danger. Yes. Kind of a lot. Yeah. So
1: I know that there are lots of people who are training to be social workers, to serve the needs specifically of the trans community. And the other thing is a lot of trans adolescents, teenagers and young adults just go missing. Yes. So, and they have a higher rate of homelessness. Yes. And addiction issues. Yes. If you're wondering how you can best spend your time,
0: there you go. (laughs) Really anything in that area? Yes. That advocacy? Yes. So I I know we said we weren't going to talk about TV shows. I didn't say that. I said we were going to talk about TV shows. No, I said we weren't. Oh. But um, um, I lied. (laughs) I lied because we are. And actually, I'm going to be the one that's talking about a TV show. I'm shocked. I've never even heard of this show. So Misty's teaching me about a TV show. Shocking. So there's a limited series on Netflix right now called Unbelievable. And I kind of came to this backwards. About four years ago, there was a ProPublica article that was done. Of course, it starts with ProPublica, not Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. And uh, this was in conjunction with The Marshall Project, which uh, later is going to lead to a This American Life episode,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, The Anatomy of Doubt. And that got picked up and turned into this like limited adir- limited series Netflix show. So this is the story of two investigations mm-hmm. into a sexual assault. One that goes entirely, completely, totally wrong. And one that is textbook, almost like an after-school special. This is everything you should do. Like
1: a training video.
0: When you're watching this uh, yeah. show, there are points where it definitely feels like they could play this yeah. in academies and be like, this is what you should do. Yeah. So... I want to lay out the details of the actual case and we can talk about the show if you want to. So in Linwood, Washington in 2008, there is a young woman. She's about 18 and somebody breaks into her house in the middle of the night, attacks her, sexually assaults her, then takes pictures of her, tells her she should keep her door locked so this doesn't happen to her again, and then leaves. She gets herself untied. She calls the cops. She calls um, her former foster mother. Mm -hmm. Everyone comes over. They listen to her story. And everyone agrees that she is, quote, unquote, not acting like a victim. This is a young woman who has been sexually assaulted before, has been brutally attacked by one of her foster fathers, has been in the foster system since three so this is a person who's had a lot of trauma in her life, right? And we know that the more trauma you experience, the more likely you are to disassociate with what is happening to you in the moment. That is known research.
1: Yeah, and the very idea that a that a as a police officer who is trained in lots of things but isn't trained as a psychologist could look at a victim and say the way you're behaving is not consistent with you being a victim because that implies that there is one way a A right way one way a victim behaves and that you could spot it professionally and as you say you don't know how many experiences a person has gone through and what may change their affect when they're talking to you. And the, to be honest, the physical crime scene is more important than a person's affect. You have no idea. And, and it, this is used against women all the time. Yes, it is. It is used against women who are accused of crimes, and it is used against women who report crimes. Your
0: affect, the way you're behaving, it just doesn't seem right to me. So this detective... Later admits he's only ever had, before this, three rape cases. Okay. He's had almost no training, and he allows himself to be swayed by personal bias. So he fully admits all of that. Okay. Which is good, but he doesn't get to that till like, four years later. So during this time, she is, quote, unquote, a difficult victim. You know, those... Rape survivors, they
1: should really be more cooperative. Right?
0: Get it together, lady. (sighs) So he threatens her with a polygraph, which... I'm sorry, what? Yes, he threatened her with a polygraph. And this is in his words. He threatened her with a polygraph. Basically, he's accusing her of lying. The Department of Justice actually has standards in when you can use a polygraph and when you can't. Yeah. And you can't use it against a sexual assault survivor. Because... Their emotions are so skewed that you won't get an accurate reading.
1: Also, it's just a terrible thing to do. Yes. On a human level.
0: <laughs> yeah, It also makes you a bad person. And he tells her, if I find out you're lying, I'm going to charge you with making a false report. Guess what, Allegra? What? He charged her with making a false report. <sighs> they find her $500.
1: They find her? For
0: wasting police time. How angry are you?
1: Uh, I have, I don't know. Judge judge my emotions just by my <laughs> affect. You look like you want to hit somebody. I mean, I kind of always want to hit somebody. But So
0: later, an outside independent investigator comes in and reads the transcripts and watches some videos and just looks at everything and says that the police harassed and bullied the victim mm-hmm. and they ignored all outside evidence, which there was evidence right. that did not match their crime scheme.
1: So they arrived at the scene thinking, it's probably nothing. They looked at her and said, she seems like she's lying, and then ignored any piece of evidence
0: that didn't
1: align with that thinking.
0: Exactly. So in putting this case into a larger perspective, we know that about one-fifth to, at the most, one-third of rapes get reported nationally because women think that cops won't believe them.
1: Where would they get that idea? I have no idea. Maybe they don't want to get charged
0: $500. Okay, so fast forward two years. Okay. To Colorado. All right. A very similar break in and rape occurs in the middle of the night. Okay. The difference is this time there is an investigator who has spent time studying how to conduct a rape investigation. Good. <laughs> right. Let's use some scholarship and some research here.
1: So, can I just ask you an anecdotal question? Sure.
0: Was the cop in this case a woman? It was. Okay. Isn't that weird how that worked? Just anecdotally. Just wondering. So um, there is a set of circumstances here that to some extent is just good luck. There are people who know other people. Yeah. All in different police districts. Mm-hmm. And they start talking. And basically all of the districts in and around this one county have at least one case that kind of looks like this. So we have a suspect who is not leaving a lot of DNA who is crossing police lines, and who is expecting these rapes are not going to really be investigated all that heavily. And he's right.
1: So this case in Colorado, they did everything right. And what is everything right?
0: So when they interviewed the victim, they were incredibly empathetic. Tell me what happened to you, but just tell it to me once. I'm not going to make you relive it 30 times. I need to take DNA from you, but I can wait 10 minutes if you need me to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you to the hospital. I'm going to have this very intensive, mm-hmm. very intensive mm-hmm. testing done on you, but I'm going to get you a counselor and that counselor is going to hold your hand and walk you through it. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to call your family? Do you want to call your family? If you don't want to call anybody, you don't have to call anybody. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's all about empowering the victim as much as you can. And then also taking account of the physical
1: evidence at the scene.
0: Yes. So they got a shoe print. They got um. what eventually they figured out it's part of a glove print and a little bit of DNA. Just a little bit. Okay. About eight months later, all of these groups working together. Yes. Come up with a suspect. Mark Patrick O'Leary. He's 33. He's arrested in 2011.
1: Is it the same guy in both crimes?
0: Yes. Yes, it is.
1: So I just.
0: Okay, but here's how we get there. This is going to come up later, but Uh
1: that was 2008. Mm Mm-hmm. The second one was 2010. He's arrested- well, well, the
0: second one that begins a b- major investigation yeah. is two years later. But there had been some in between.
1: Yeah. So assuming that people did their jobs in 2008.
0: Yep. Okay. So this guy, when they capture him, when they arrest him, they go through mm-hmm. his home and they find a camera he actually stole from a different victim. And what he had started to do was take pictures of his victims during the attack. There's a picture of a very, very young woman with her ID on top of her body during the attack. And it's the woman from Washington. So then these detectives from Colorado call Washington and say, hey, we're going to help you guys. We got a rapist and he attacked somebody in your area. And they have to say, oh, uh, yeah, we find that girl for lying to us.
1: Did she get her $500 back?
0: (laughs) Um, She did. Not that
1: the $500 is what's important to her. But it is important that the institution and the police department took accountability, and that's why I'm asking about the five hundred dollars.
0: She did get it, and um, they they gave her the check, and she was just going to take the five hundred dollars. But she, and I think, had every right to feel this way. She was angry, yeah, and so she sued the city, and she ends up with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars.
1: Good, because I mean, and it could have been more. It
0: could have been more and it probably should Should have have been been more
1: but i mean jurisdictions have to understand that there are consequences right and if you don't care about the consequence of you know letting a serial rapist just roam the streets and if you don't care about the consequence of mistreating a victim
0: maybe you'll care about losing
1: additional consequence of of the notoriety and the loss of money should help in terms of motivating people to do more what to the, do
0: their jobs right
1: training better training of empathy and victim response and understanding mental health all of those things are enormously important for police yes and most police who do the wrong thing eventually say i wish someone had told me what the right thing was right we're right. talking about people who in most cases are making split dis- like split-second decisions. And so training is extremely important. Yes. Giving people the benefit of the doubt, most of the time they want to do the right thing and they don't know how to see what the right, right. thing is. It's not like the police are evil. Yeah. And like you, well, no comment, but um, <laughs> I don't think the majority of people become police officers to be evil. Sure. And, but like you said, the investigator in the 2010 case in Colorado Was trained in, had experience in this type of investigation. And that is what made a big difference. Of course, she probably had more empathy and was more willing to see things from a different perspective. But that came from her experience. So the thing is, recently, lots of people have been doing research on how common sexual assault is. and. Here's something that I found, which is the first experience with sexual intercourse for more than 3 million women in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's about 1 in every 16 women. Mm -hmm. 1 in every 16 women. Their first experience with sex was forced or coerced. Yes. That's astounding. 1 in 16. Yes. And those women face more long-term health consequences compared with peers who had a voluntary first experience. And that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association.
0: Yes. Yeah, that was a uh, big news maybe two, three weeks ago. Um, just to close out the old Deary story, I do want to tell you what his eventual sentencing was. He got 327 and a half years in prison. This is he pled guilty to
1: 28 counts brought against him.
0: Yes, he did. For every assault on every victim.
1: So, at least six women, at least 28 counts.
0: Yes, but we think, again, that that's low. Mm -hmm.
1: Which, by the way, how is it that it could be low? How is it that we could have serial rapists roaming the streets and
0: not even know it? Oh, let's talk about that. So, I'm sure that you are aware there's an issue around the testing of rape kits. You know how I became aware of this issue? Oh my god, you're gonna tell me
1: it's a movie. No. Okay, good. You know how I became aware of this issue? How? I went to renew my driver's license. What? Yeah. I am not seeing the connection here. You have the option when you renew your drive because you know it costs a nominal like ten dollars or something to get a new driver's license. And so there's boxes that you check at the bottom that ask you if you wanna donate a dollar to various things. So, there, there's something on there about donating a dollar for, like, veteran services and donating a dollar for... All. So, you just check which ones and then they add it to your total and instead okay. of $10, it's whatever. There's an option on the Texas driver's license application to add a dollar to pay to get rape kits tested. I didn't know that. Is your driver's license current? Because I feel like it's been there for a long time.
0: Yeah, I feel like I updated online the last time, so I probably didn't read anything other than just click the yeah. button and move yeah. on. So that's and then so then I went and looked up more information about it. So statistically, we have 125,000 rapes that are reported annually each year. So we know that represents between one fifth and one third of what's re- of what's reported is actually what's happening. Mm-hmm. So again, that's low, and that's coming from the Atlantic. 49 out of every 50 cases that are actually pursued, mm-hmm. the assailant goes free. So it's only one third of rapes are reported. Yes. And of
1: those, 49 of 50 go free. Yes. And there
0: cool is so much within there that we can talk about. But basically, this is the crime that when it gets reported to police... That at every stage of the game mm-hmm. has the least chance of moving to the next stage. So you're sexually assaulted and you call the police to your home. Mm-hmm. If they, if the assault, assaultant, how is it? the assailant? If the assailant took something from you, they might write it up as a burglary instead of an assault. Police tr- districts have to report the crimes to the national databases, and so we want our town to look safe. A burglary is better, image-wise, than a sexual assault. So I can choose how to file this. So you still with me? hmm If I choose, okay, I'm going to put it down as a sexual assault, then when the victims come in to be interviewed, many of those statements get dismissed because maybe the victim was drinking or maybe they had taken some drugs or maybe they knew their assailant. And this is a he said, she said.
1: I have a question. Sure.
0: I've got a lot of questions. If,
1: if a man got beaten in the street. Yes. Outside of a bar. Yes. And was very drunk. hmm Would he still be a credible victim? In most cases, yes, right? I would hope so. That's investigated mm-hmm. as an assault. I don't really understand what the difference is.
0: I don't either. There's also something police can do here, which is just straight up classify it as quote-unquote unfounded.
1: So they can just write, we got called to the scene.
0: We don't think it's a real crime.
1: They said this happened. So the police have that much latitude that they can say unfounded and it just kind of goes away.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: That's unimaginable. Is the only word I can think of that is not profane.
0: So. All right, one more case. Why? Why? Because all of this is super important. So Sarah Reedy is 19. Mm Mm-hmm. She is raped at gunpoint at a gas station she's working at in Pennsylvania. She does everything we tell victims to do. Mm-hmm. Immediately calls the police. Consents to a rape kit. Is compliant with the investigation. Answers any questions they ask her. She's also going to be charged with falling, filing a false report. They just marked her case as unfounded. Uh, yeah. So she... Later is going to sue, and she won $1.5 million in damages. And part of her complaint is that her rape kit was not tested in a timely manner. Which, to consent to a rape kit exam yeah. is almost another trauma on victims. Mm-hmm. Every inch of your body Mm -hmm. is going to be examined Mm -hmm. and touched and it's going to be painful. Mm -hmm. It's humiliating, Mm -hmm. but she did it all. So that idea that rape kits are not tested sometimes ever is a really important thing that's coming up in the news a lot. And I think the language here is really important. We call it a backlog Mm -hmm. and I don't think we should use that term because backlog makes it sound like like, there's nothing we can do about it. It's just too many. Right. Yeah. I mean, it does
1: sound like that. It's very passive language. Yeah, because if there's a backlog, then it means that things are being actively processed, but we are just intaking so many. faster than we can outtake. Yes. But it does insinuate that work
0: is actively being done. Yes. Yeah. And in some cases, that is just not true. Um, so there's actually a organization that's been founded around this issue. All right. So there is a survivor of a sexual assault who, again, did not have her rape kit tested. And she's going to create the People for Enforcement of Rape Laws. So P-E-R-L. Okay. Uh, This group's been founded in 2015, I believe, in Memphis. So her case is kind of the same, the ones I've been telling. Uh, She was raped at the age of 16 in her family home. In 2003, she finds out nine years later that her rape kit had just never been tested. Jesus. Yeah. She uh, then finds out that the person who raped her is a serial rapist that has at least six other victims. So she begins this by suing the city of Memphis and then founding this um, nonprofit organization to just to like educate people on what the problems are and what's happening how to fix it during the time that this organization has existed. There's been a Memphis cop charged with repeated sexual assaults and a Memphis judge.
1: It kind of makes you wonder um,
0: why they weren't testing the rape kits. So the headline from the case about the judge says allegations against him by three women, quote unquote, isolated incidents. Memphis judge says,
1: I'm sh- I, Can you have
0: three isolated incidents? Doesn't also, that
1: take away the word isolated? Doesn't it matter if they were isolated? I mean, I don't, what kind of defense
0: is that? I don't know. It, it, uh. So in 2009, the uh, rape kit issue became national news.
1: Yes, because of Detroit.
0: So Detroit ends up finding, a prosecutor ends up finding, that they have over 11,000 untested rape kits. Some are more than 30 years old. And the the story is crazy, right? The, yes. the
1: district attorney or the prosecutor, uh, I guess the prosecutor in the DA's office, just was like, where's this evidence? And some cop just took her to, like, a decrepit warehouse. It was a dude, but yeah. The original uh, guy's a dude. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just took him to a decrepit warehouse and, like, the The roof,
0: windows are gone because people have been throwing things through the windows. And it was just, like, a warehouse mm-hmm. full of untested rape kits yeah and the um officer that took the guy in said oh yeah all of these have been tested so the guy opens a box and the first thing he pulls out is everything's been sealed it's never been opened and he's like oh maybe this one got missed so he opens the next box same thing and he said he just did a real quick like rough count he's like there's 10,000 cases here that haven't been tested no that was wrong it was 11,000 but from 30 years back. So the testing of these kits is really, 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 really important. Because since 2009, we have reevaluated mm-hmm. everything we think we know mm-hmm. about rapists. There was this idea by a lot of criminologists that, especially ones that have studied mostly murder and not rape, that criminologists have this idea that um, crimes basically are the same. So if I'm a criminal, I have a specific si- MO signature, signature yeah. that I stick with. Yeah. So the the example that everyone points to is Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. He likes Burnett's with a part in a certain way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not true of serial rapists. It's a crime of opportunity, not a crime of taste or choice which I know that those are terrible words to put there but that's how it's described they're
1: they're not when you're looking for a serial rapist you don't have to find petite redheads with ponytail right Mm -mm. so you can't connect them in the what they might consider traditional investigative ways and what's crazy is that you have physical evidence that could close cases instantly yes
0: I mean, because DNA evidence
1: is pretty... Especially if the same assailant is found in multiple rape kits, that kind of just dispels this false notion that women change their mind about consent after the fact. You know what I mean? If it's for... It's just... It's very compelling evidence that is just sitting there because... They don't want to spend the money because they don't want to admit that they were wrong because they don't want to have to change everything they know and understand about sexual assault.
0: Or because the victim wasn't the quote unquote right kind of victim. But the response that that prosecutor had when he walked in there. Yes.
1: Compared to the response of the cop who brought him there. Yes. Yes is striking, right? Yes. So one has become completely desensitized to the horror of these untested rape kits and the distri- And just
0: completely not curious. Yeah. He was told, oh, everything's been tested. He goes, cool, everything's been tested. So they have started to... I was going to say clear the black lock,
1: but we're not using that word. They have started to process some of these... Yes.
0: ...untested kits. So Eric Eugene Wilkes... Is a person whose DNA was found in these Detroit cases. His first DNA sample was taken 18 years ago. Since that sample, he's been found in 11 other rape samples. So this man has had a 20-year... Career is not the right word here. Legger. what am I looking for? Span. Span of sexual assault. And he's a known burglar and carjacker and they... Just never imagine that he'd also be a rapist. But, I mean, can you imagine that that information has sat there for 20 years? And how many more of these women did not have to be brutalized if maybe the first, I don't know, let's just even be generous, five mm-hmm. were tested? Mm-hmm. It's, it's beyond outrageous. <laughs> like, it is. I'm angry. It
1: is. And... During the Obama administration, I know that there was a huge push and there was federal support to get yes.
0: um, sexual assault kits investigated fully. It's called SACI, I think, the yeah. Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, which was began in 2015. And the Justice Department inventoried
1: and supported the testing of rape kits in jurisdictions that opted to participate.
0: Fifty-four jurisdictions so far have participated, and the Justice Department has spent one—no, sorry, uh,
1: $154 So they are following up on investigations. The task force is following up on investigations and prosecutions of nearly 5,000 untested kits from 1993 through 2009. And the task force is auditing as they go, and they have found— That notes from police investigations, the original victim reports, Mm -hmm. less than a page. Sometimes, yes. In 40% of cases, detectives never contacted the victim. So the patrol officer responded to the call. Yes. Wrote down some notes, gave it to a detective to investigate, and the detective in 40% of the cases didn't even reach out to the victim. Mm Mm-hmm. In three out of four cases, detectives didn't interview the victim. Mm -hmm. Half of the investigations were closed in a week. A quarter of them were closed in a day. Yes. Rape kits are very rarely tested. Cleveland accumulated 7,000. Yes.
0: Yes. In that 1990s time frame. And so it's just the 90s. And
1: there was one instance where they used the rape kit only to find out if the woman was intoxicated at the
0: time of the report. And they charged her with uh, consuming illegal drugs. Not with the rape. Not the rapist. Great. Yeah,
1: fantastic, right? So the, the, the reason that people know more about this is the story that got published in The Atlantic, a brain?
0: Yes. I Uh, mean, it's been uh, picked up. The story has been picked up by a lot of organizations, but I think The Atlantic was one of the first ones. That
1: story is called An Epidemic of Disbelief. And there's also an episode of Think, uh, which is a -A, KERA PBS podcast um, that came out, I want to say, in August,
0: yeah, it's pretty recent. Yeah. And it's the Atlantic author, I think.
1: Yeah, it's the author of the Atlantic article being interviewed on this NPR podcast that we can link in our show notes. If you, I mean, they really get into mm-hmm. the story of how these rape kits got
0: accumulated and what we found and ignored. from that. So the logic, again, before this was that most rapists acc- They weren't serial offenders.
1: Right. A lot of times people assumed that it was always acquaintance rape, right?
0: Or it was somebody was intoxicated or it was somebody was in a bad part of town and wasn't paying attention. But the assumption was not that a man might be a rapist in the same way he might be a serial killer. Yeah. And what this data just from Cleveland shows us is that that's not true. As they've been running this DNA and they're getting several hits off the same DNA profiles, they've come to find that one out of every five sexual assaults belongs to a serial rapist. 20% of sexual assaults are part of a series of crimes. So that changes fundamentally our understanding Mm -hmm. of this crime. If there is a 20% chance that any sexual assault is part of a serialized crime event Mm -hmm. every single one has to be investigated has to be
1: well everyone has to be investigated regardless but you know what i'm saying there's
0: a larger problem in cleveland alone the number here is 480 serial predators from just the data ran from the 1990s there's 500 people running around cleveland that nobody was looking for
1: So, I'm glad I checked the (laughs) box to donate a dollar. Yes.
0: We should all be doing that.
1: There are probably ways in whatever community you live in that you can contribute to uh, the efforts to test untested rape kits.
0: And if you go to um, that group I said before. Pearl. Pearl. P-E-R-L. If you go there, they have um, a bunch of links on... How to get involved, why it matters, what to do, mm-hmm. and just data for you if you really want to dig in. And I highly recommend him. I mean, you could fall down a rabbit hole pretty quickly. Yeah. You might want to have a drink in your hand as you're reading it. Or,
1: you know, twelve.
0: So we're going to Harvey Weinstein. We are unfortunately going to
1: talk about Harvey Weinstein briefly. What
0: more is there to say about this? Allegra? Again,
1: again, similar to Brett Kavanaugh, probably something that you're familiar with. But the, I guess, more recent update is that his attorney, Donna Rotuno, Rotuno? Rotuno, I think. Um, she's a former prosecutor and she has defended many men accused of sexual assault and rape. She's actually handled about 40 cases defending men accused of sexual misconduct this attorney, Donna Rotano, was interviewed recently by Gail King. And I don't know if you remember this, but Gail King also recently interviewed R. Kelly and totally.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had forgotten about Did that. Did a very
1: excellent job not caving to his craziness. Mm-hmm. So I just want to read an excerpt of this interview because I feel like the attitude and approach that his attorney is taking. It's actually pretty surprising, maybe maybe not surprising for a person who would represent Harvey Weinstein, but everyone deserves
0: a defense, though. We will say
1: that. (laughs) So Gail King said, we've got really more than 70 women, including names that we all know, Gwyneth Paltrow, Salma Hayek, Ashley Judd, Lupita Nyong'o, who have all said that Harvey Weinstein sexually harassed them. I know you're saying these aren't criminal cases, but these are certainly very serious allegations. How do you respond to that, and does that matter to you? The attorney said, well, sure, I think it matters. It might matter to me in my analysis of the whole, in the circumstance, but if I look at the criminal case, frankly, these allegations don't matter in the context of the criminal case. So King asks, how does he explain the allegations? Well, I don't think it's about explaining them. She said, I think it's, you know, anytime we talk about men and women in sexual circumstances, I think we have to look at the fact that there's always an area of gray. So there's these blurred lines. And then sometimes one side walks away from an event feeling very different from the other. And how do we reconcile with that? Which, again, takes us back to that notion that there isn't a clear right and wrong. Right. Right. And there is, right? Consent is a very clear yes or no. Yes. And power dynamics are very clear. So it's not there's a sexual circumstance. That's what she calls it, a sexual circumstance. And then the two people walk away and she says there's blurred lines and they have different opinions of what happened. That's not the case if you are a serial abuser.
0: Right. And I I will say what she's doing here as a prosecutor... Is smart defense attorney sorry defense attorney yeah what she's doing here is a defense attorney it's smart it's, of course I mean
1: you're trying to make it look like there was no crime
0: right and she's using language here that most people probably feel most comfortable with mm-hmm. with these crimes because I said this whole idea that we've had with the rape kits it's changing hmm how we view this, and it's changing our research and statistics, but that is going to take 20 to 30 years Mm -hmm. to penetrate into what most people think and believe about these situations. So when she talks about gray areas, blurred lines, misinterpreted feelings... Then
1: people feel like, oh, well, I've had a circumstance in my life where somebody didn't understand. Right, and so it's not the same as that.
0: And she's putting these in context of one incident at a time, and she's not talking about this being serialized crime and,
1: and in the interview she talks very specifically about the two cases that the criminal charges are brought about and not about the fact that there are over 70 women who have made statements about him right so at the end of the interview gail king asks her do you ever worry that you're making it harder for women who have been sexually harassed assaulted or raped to come forward which is a great question it is she said no i would hope that i'm making it easier for them And Gail King, of course, said, how so? (laughs) Here's her answer. And if you can make heads or tails of it, I'll give you a prize. Oh, good. I would hope that doing what I'm doing makes them realize they have choices. And if they really are in a position that they feel uncomfortable, then the first thing they should do is report it. They should go to the police. And I think that that sort of weeding out the cases that don't rise to the level of real assaults should help real victims. So, no, I think
0: I'm helping them, actually. I see what she's doing. But, again, she's using that language, quote-unquote, real victims. Mm -hmm. We, as early as the 1900s, like 1910, are talking about the deserving poor Mm -hmm. and deserving victims. And this is just dredging up that old language. Yeah. That's exactly what she's doing.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, I know... That in a lot of cases where the choice of whether to prosecute a rape in a trial, to take it all the way to trial, depends entirely on whether it's a good victim. Yeah. So that meaning, like, someone who has an education, someone
0: who has never had problems with the law, right? Like, And we do have rape shield laws, but there are ways around those. Sure. And a rape shield law is just like, I can't, if I'm... An attorney question a victim about their past sexual history. I'm not supposed to bring in their moral character to this. Right. But any good attorney can get around that.
1: Of course. So we are going to, uh, I guess, what's the best way to say? Stop talking about sexual assault.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I wish we could.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wish we didn't have to talk Uh, about it. Yeah, I wish we could stop talking about it and didn't have to. But it is something that needs to be talked about. Of course, there are other things that are terrible. And also need to be talked about. And also need to be talked about. Did you know doctors are less likely to believe you if you're a woman? Yes, I did know that. Especially if you're a woman of color. Yes. Yeah. So the New York Times has reported that healthcare providers may have implicit biases that affect the way women are heard, understood, and treated. And, of course, everyone has an implicit bias. The point here is that you need to be aware of it so that you can act, uh, consciously act to overcome it so that you don't mistreat people based on it. So the quote here from a doctor in this story is medical schools and professional guidelines are starting to address this problem, but there's still much to be done. And, of course, if medical schools are doing it, that doesn't help the thousands and thousands of doctors who are out of medical school. Health disparities are hardly exclusive to women. In the United States, if you're not wealthy, not white, and not heterosexual, you may be receiving less than optimal health care.
0: Maternity death rates are higher. We're getting there. Okay. (laughs) Um, I don't want to jump the gun. <laughs> there is a lot more research on mm-hmm. how
1: women and men are treated differently in medical settings, but it is very concerning anytime you're a woman seeking care, especially if you are a woman seeking emergency or urgent care. Research shows that both doctors and nurses prescribe less pain medication to women than men after surgery, even though women report more frequent and severe pain. After, in a University of Pennsylvania study, found that women waited 16 minutes longer than men to receive pen, pain medication in an emergency room. So 16 minutes on average, which means some people wait hours longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are also more likely to be told their pain is psychosomatic or influenced by emotional distress. And in a survey of more than 2,400 women with chronic pain, 83% Said that they had felt that they felt they had experienced gender discrimination from their healthcare providers. Here's a great one. I'm excited. A Yale cardiology study found that many women hesitated to seek help for a heart attack because they worried
0: about being thought of as a hypochondriac. I can make that one even worse. There are studies that show that women that actually show up at ERs having heart attacks are sent home. Because their heart attacks don't look like male heart attacks. Right.
1: They are tra- they don't present the same way. And so doctors don't often spot them. That was a great his Grey's Anatomy episode about it, but you don't care.
0: <clears throat> it was also on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend.
1: So recognize, it's important that, that we recognize that reporting or expressing concern over symptoms doesn't mean that you're overreacting, self-diagnosing, trying to get attention, trying to do their job for them um and so some advice for patients although of course in this situation it is the doctor's responsibility to care
0: for patients but you also have to be your own advocate do. do not let somebody dismiss you
1: so asking for guidelines so if they make a recommendation that you feel is dismissive to ask why they're recommending that or what guidelines give them to recommend waiting and seeing what happens being very direct repeating what is really concerning to you emphasizing what the real problem is or why you think it's not normal or not something that can be easily dismissed and check your own bias, your own bias, where you may have been taught or socialized to minimize your own pain, to avoid complaining, to not be seen as overreacting, to not cause anybody any trouble, to think, well, they probably know better than me. All of those impulses you might have because you were socialized as a woman in our day and age you may even tend to rationalize your own symptoms right to say mm-hmm. i'm just tired it's not a heart
0: attack i'm just really
1: tired exactly so there you know it's a hard thing to navigate especially if you are fighting against all of your own instincts there's a great piece from january in time magazine by uh, dr tressie mcmillan Cottom. she's a sociology professor and she was pregnant and very mistreated. I don't want to give the whole story away. You can read it on Time Magazine. We'll link it in the show notes. But I just want to read you this quote Like millions of women of color, especially black women, the healthcare machine could not imagine me as competent. And so it neglected and ignored me until I was incompetent. Wow. And there was actually a John Oliver's... Yes, I was going to mention that, with Wanda Sykes. Last week tonight, in a very recent episode, he said you're much more likely to have a bad experience at the doctor if you're a woman or a person of color. And he has a lot of great, well, disturbing, but very vivid examples of the ways that medical professionals have failed certain areas of society, and actually they get Wanda Sykes' <clears throat> and uh, who's the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm?
0: It's um, Sorry, it's Larry David, Larry and you can David. go to what's Larry's whatslarrysproblem.com. Yeah, and so the joke
1: is, if the doctor won't listen to you because you're a woman, to play this video of Larry David complaining mm-hmm. of the same symptoms so that they will listen <laughs> and give you the adequate medication. Obviously, that's a joke, but it is pretty il-
0: illustrative. Well, it's, of- a, it's a joke, but it also shows you that if a man walked in and said this, yeah, the reaction would be X. Yeah. A woman walks in and says the same thing, the reaction is, are you sure, honey? Yeah. Or let's wait and see. Are you sure you're not overreacting? Can yeah. you take a deep breath for me?
1: Yeah. This is not something that's ever happened to me. I don't know if it's because- Oh, it's happened to me. I'm very direct and forceful
0: anyway, so I'm In little- an ambulance, having an asthma attack, and I had a paramedic ask me if I could calm down and take a deep breath. No, I can't. That's why you're here. That is literally the whole reason you're here. And, of course, I can't yell at you right now because I can't breathe. Yeah, and in that essay by Dr. Cottom in
1: Time magazine, there's a point where she's going into labor and she's been ignored for three days in labor. And the anesthesiologist basically says, if you don't shut up, I'm not going to give you any pain medication. Because they thought she's being too loud or outrageous. Yeah. So
0: cool. Did you also know that we're more likely to die in car accidents? I didn't know this one. This um, surprised me. Should it? No. <laughs> it should just, it should always be my assumption that it's worse. So, but this is just not one I had thought about before. The, the
1: odds of serious injury or death for female car crash victims is 73% higher than for males. Which Why? Is because. The crash test dummies they use to to test cars and safety equipment and seatbelts. Of course. They usually use the average male, which is bigger, is different than the average female. And when they use the woman dummy, which was, by the way, only introduced in 2003, (laughs) it is five feet
0: tall. Wait, 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 wait. So crash test dummy people. Yeah like remembered hey wait there's women 51 percent of our population doesn't look like this in 2003
1: yeah but the woman is five feet tall and weighs 110 pounds oh
0: so she's a toddler amazing
1: not really representing the dimensions of an actual or an average woman yes so yeah and there are scientists studying All of these things, and one of the scientists says, we obviously know a lot of ways that men and women are different biomechanically. These differences like fat distribution and pelvis shape have the potential to change the way that seatbelts interact with the body and with our underlying
0: skeletal structures. Yeah, that makes so much sense just when you think about it. The way a seatbelt fits is, of course, going to be different. Yes. That's so basic. He added
1: the work to take this information and actually apply it to real-life safety measures just simply has not been done yet, so they all know. Oh my god! They all know. The literal quote is <laughs> applying this applying this information to real life safety measures. Quote: Just simply has not been done yet. End quote.
0: Because nothing. Because because it hasn't been done yet. What are we waiting on? I d- I don't know. I I don't know. I don't even know where to go from here. (laughs) Like, (laughs) everything's bad.
1: So, yeah, this is weird. And this is specific, but it's a very recent news story. And I wanted to bring it up because I guess my point here is everything's bad just everywhere. Oh,
0: that's an amazing point.
1: (laughs) Across the Internet. You're familiar with the Internet.
0: Oh, sorry. I am.
1: Across the internet, companies buy ad space, right? That appears on the sides of web pages and banner ads, entertainment and sports articles. And these purchasing decisions are made with ad verification to compare the article's content with block lists of thousands of words because advertisers want to avoid putting their ad next to something, you know, hateful or egregious.
0: That makes sense. Like, so. If my company is going to sell an internet or buy an inter- ad space, I don't want it to run on a neo-Nazi website. Exactly. Yes. So they avoid words
1: like shooting, kill, attack, those kinds of words. Your ad won't appear next to them. Okay. It doesn't matter if the article is positive, right? If it's the city's murder rate is down to historic low or negative, gruesome murder shock city, both articles would be banned by that block list because it mentions shootings and murders. Okay.
0: Okay, so even if it was like somebody's killing it, meaning they're doing an amazing thing... Could could block it, yes. Okay, cool. So a new study
1: <clears throat> from an organization called Czech, CHEQ, they have a competing ad verification service, found that nearly two-thirds of all non-pornographic, non-explicit LGBTQ news content is banned by those lists... Because the lists contain the words lesbian and bisexual.
0: So just an article in which... The word lesbian is used. Would trigger as being like an offensive article and I don't want my ad next to that. Correct. Because that word is associated
1: with being graphic or pornographic. Okay. So... The Advocate, which is a very popular LGBTQ news site, 73% of their positive or neutral content blocked by those block lists because they have words like lesbian or bisexual.
0: Because these aren't smart lists. These are, if it checks this box, it's out. Right. Okay.
1: I'm going to protect my brand. I only want it to appear on pages that are 100% safe, so better safe than sorry. But the research that I read, which this is an NBC news story, is this is severely damaging publishers' ability to monetize premium content, making minority news and opinion unviable.
0: Well, yeah, and I would think it would even block some entertainment news. So I think about, like, something like Mm -hmm. Orange is the New Black. Yeah. And there are whole character arcs Mm -hmm. and whole seasons that have to do with lesbian romances. Mm -hmm. And just mentioning that... Mm is going to knock out that one article, even though that is a very well-known show, Mm -hmm. from advertising. What it says is
1: companies struggle to determine the good stuff from the bad stuff, Then, so the only recourse is blacklist all of it, because they're only using AI. The article also said these advertisers are often progressive and want to reach LGBTQ consumers, but a technology deficit is to blame. And so the the big harm isn't like, oh, if you go to the advocate, you can't see ads. The, the issue is the advocate doesn't get to generate revenue. Right. Which means they don't get to hire as many writers, which means they don't get to create as much content, which means we have less and less right. of their voices being represented in the conversation. And the comment that's on the news story is these advertisers are often progressive, which I don't know if I want to agree that the definition of progress is a company is willing to advertise on a gay website. Because I feel like that was progress in the 1990s.
0: Right. That's a very low bar to be... But not everyone has cleared it. (laughs) Let's just be clear. I just don't think that that counts as progressive. I do see, if I had a company, a concern... Because I wouldn't necessarily want my ad on a pornographic website.
1: Yeah, and so that's the point. Like, why is the word lesbian just automatically assumed to be pornographic? Pornographic, yeah.
0: Yes. So I understand that that's what they're trying to do, but there's got to be another way. Yeah. Maybe it could, like, reach a threshold if it hits, like, three of these, Mm -hmm. four of these, rather than a complete blanket block.
1: So that's another thing where they know it's a problem and they just... Haven't done anything about it yet.
0: Good. It's good we're aware.
1: So are you ready?
0: For what now?
1: To talk about good things. Yes. Okay. Well, I have two good news, bad newses first. No. You said good. This is a transition from bad to good. Okay. Here's some good news, bad news. Sure. Okay. We're two years into Me Too being... a A, a nationally explosive news story that is written about on a daily basis it's more than two years old as a movement and as a hashtag i there are lots of people who have lots of takes every day on the topic of course but it's important to remember that the very worst thing that can happen is that people just stop talking about it altogether right like happened before in the 90s exactly Right. We had the year of the woman and then
0: 1992 nothing
1: happened. So For it's important years. to take stock of the change, the changing status quo and to see how things are affecting people on a personal level, professional level. And even as we start talked about earlier, in a national
0: level, if we're talking yes. about a Supreme Court justice. Right. I do feel like I haven't heard this as much in the last three or four months, maybe. Yeah. I think it died down a little bit in the summer
1: because everything else
0: was so terrible. Yeah, <laughs> You only have so much energy to expend on what's horrible.
1: Exactly. So, uh, a recent NBC story quoted the editor-in-chief of Cosmopol- Cosmopolitan. Of Cosmopolitan.
0: What were she, you going to call it? It
1: uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> Undoubtedly, she said, the workplace is better for women than it was three or five years ago. And in terms of dating... I've got a study from Match.com. Okay. This year's ninth annual Singles in America report surveyed more than 5,000 single men and women in the United States. More than half of the male respondents said the Me Too movement has caused them to change their behavior, with 37% of millennial men reporting they now act more reserved on a date. Now, how many of them were complaining that they had to act more reserved And how many of them were saying, I act more reserved and it's a good thing, I don't know. But more than half say they change their behavior, and 37% of millennial men said they act more reserved on a date. Helen Fisher, Match.com's chief scientific advisor, which I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, Good for them. She said, public health professionals have been studying social change for decades. Time and time again, they find it's very, very hard to change social behavior. Here we have 51% of men saying that the Me Too movement has caused them to act differently. This is a sea change in behavior. So basically what she's saying is it's very hard to get people to act differently and to reflect on their behavior and acknowledge that they're different.
0: And So So to see a 51% change in 24 months
1: is a big deal. It's astounding. Yeah. But then they ask men for quotes. Oh, good. Some (laughs) of these are okay. Here's one. Is this your bad news part? Is this where it slides? It's a delicate balance for men. The end result in societal norms will shift, and women will have to make the first move and express interest in some cases. Okay, that's fine. So he's basically saying, like, men are now afraid to hit on women entirely. Here's another. I think the reality is if you want to make an impression with a woman, you have to make a little contact. Women deserve to be respected and choose whatever relationships or interactions they want to engage in. Stop! just stop but
0: that's where it's gonna go
1: badly but i think for most of them there's still a deep desire to be chased oh here's if you would have just stopped nope here's another for me i definitely look back on college in particular and cringe (laughs) at some of i can't
0: i can't allegra (laughs) i
1: can't and cringe at some of the blackout drunk nights where i stalked a girl around a party or whatever With maturity, I started to be more respectful as I got into my 20s, but it's good to analyze past behavior. If and when I have kids, it would definitely be an emphasis as they got into high school college to be like, listen, son, don't be a creep. I don't even know how I feel about that one. (laughs) Last one, a big takeaway for me is that I now feel a sense of importance and awareness to not only support women against negative behavior in public, but also to discourage other men from these negative behaviors. An example, being out at bars and being able to recognize when a girl's being hit on to the point that she's actively uncomfortable. I'll cut in and try to help her out of the situation while making it clear I don't expect anything in return. Yay! Okay, so good news, bad news, right? We've made a lot of progress. There have been some behavior changes. People are more aware of it. I
0: want to ask you, though, Misty. Sure. Are you
1: aware of the Rock Rule?
0: Yes. Yes. I think I am. What do you think it is? If you wouldn't say it to the Rock, don't Don't say say it it. to a woman. I knew something. You did. (laughs) So it's a
1: it's a female blogger came up with it. The Rock retweeted it and kind of made it even more notorious. And it's crude advice, it's
0: very rudimentary, but I think if you can't grasp any of these complex concepts, it's a good place to start. You know, I use something similar in my online classes. I tell my students, if you wouldn't say it out loud in front of your grandmother at church, you don't need to type it in the discussion board.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, sure, you can tell me a, I have a nice shirt, right? So people act like, I can't tell anybody anything these days. You can say, I really like your shirt, because you could say that to The Rock. Right. Right. But Or your grandma. Do a little spin around for me. Let me see how you look in that shirt. No, not appropriate. <laughs> Imagine yourself saying it to the rock. Mm-hmm. right? Okay. yeah,
0: no, not gonna work.
1: So uh, last good news, bad news. It's mostly bad. So I'm, I'm ready. So I'm bracing. For, you know, Forbes is known for its lists.
0: Yes, okay? They make lists. They have a list <laughs>
1: they had a, they recently had a list of innovative
0: leaders. Oh, let me guess. 100 most innovative leaders. Okay, and I'm going to guess how many of these are women? Yes. 100 total. Yeah. So statistically average with our society should be 51, but we know it won't be that. But we're talking about leaders and women don't have as many leadership roles,
1: so a good number would be... 10. We had one. Good. One out of 100. Yay. So there was one. There was... There was one. There was one. Yay. (sighs) Who was it? Jeff, Jeff, I don't, uh, I'll tell you in a minute. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk tied for first place and Mark Zuckerberg had third. Uh, Mm, Okay. mm, okay. So there was a huge backlash. The editor tweeted, we blew it.
0: You know what? That's how you own it when you mess up. Sort of. Not that it was poorly phrased.
1: It's not the best yet. Okay. Oh, no.
0: So he said, we blew
1: it. That was... (laughs) The only woman on the list was Barbara Rentler, and she's the CEO of Ross Stores. What is that? Ross,
0: like Ross, Dress for Less. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry.
1: (laughs) She she was number 75.
0: So there was a very- At least she wasn't number 100.
1: (laughs) There was a very, very fast, very swift online reaction. So Rashma Saudjaji, whose name I maybe mispronounced, although I did try to practice it- she started Girls Who Code. hmm She tweeted out a link to the article and asked people to share names of women who are innovative leaders. I saw that. So... I didn't know what was in spo- response to, it, but I definitely saw that. She got a lot of replies, including Stacey Abrams, the politician from Georgia, the founder of Glossier makeup brand, Emily Weiss. Okay. Kimberly Bryant of Black Girls Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, refugee, refugee Coffee Company CEO Kitty Murray. Spanx Inventor, Sarah Blakely. Misty made a face. Keep going. Rihanna, because she started mm-hmm. a brand, S- Serena Williams. Lots of people. And in case Forbes needed more female names, dozens of female CEOs, including designer Stella McCartney, Uh, founder and CEO of Minted, Mariam Nefensi, that's like a stationery company. Okay, got it. Sarah Leary. I like that you know the ones I'm not going to know. Sarah Leary, co-founder of Nextdoor. Yep. You know that one. They all signed an open letter to Forbes, basically saying, like, you forgot that women existed. (laughs) Again. (laughs) (laughs) And Ann Wojcicki is the CEO and co-founder of 23andMe. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. She signed the letter because she wanted better representation. And she said, you know, it's not just a dumb list. People do think about these lists. They go online and think about board members and advisors and who it is that can help solve a problem. I think there are real ripple effects when this kind of press dominates. It's not just one article. It's how, in general, women are perceived.
0: Well, right, and it's also the weight we put on this entity it's not a buzzfeed list right it's a forbes list right those are different Mm -hmm.
1: she says it's a problem with oversight it's kind of shocking that this actually got through she said i would love to see their editorial policy of diversity represented at the top when they're starting to think about what are the lists we're going to put out so it happened and that's terrible and it's dumb they admit they blew it that's good. But they don't really take any blame. Their argument is that they use an... objective. Wait, wait, wait. Is it women should try harder? They use an objective point system, okay? So basically they're saying we just run the numbers. And actually the editor compared it to the list of the most... The
0: wealthiest—it's just the people people that have the most money. Yes, wealthiest is the word I couldn't think of. Oh, okay. So So it's not like their company; it's them personally. Yeah. So Forbes comes out
1: with a list of billionaires, like the wealthiest. So Jeff
0: Bezos, wealthiest people in America,
1: and they're like, it's the same as that. We're just counting the money. It's not our fault there aren't as many women billionaires.
0: So there's no subjectivity here.
1: Right. And that's their Mm. argument. So, yes, in a list of the wealthiest people, you are just counting the money. And it is not, in fact, Forbes' fault that women aren't billionaires. But in the list of most innovative leaders, that is not 100 percent objective. Right.
0: How do you count creativity? And
1: even if you, as they say, he said the pool proved the problem. Women are poorly represented at the top of the largest corporations. And they fare even worse among public tech companies. In other words, for all our carefully calibrated methodology, <laughs> women never had much of a chance here.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
1: So I don't think it was carefully calibrated. No. Enough. He said in the past, when a list lays bare larger cultural issues, we've created learning moments. Right. For years, many criticized Forbes billionaires list for its lack of women. While that's a case of shooting the messenger, here's his quote, we just count the money, we've also taken active steps to counterbalance, including the creation of a specific list of the richest self-made women, which over four years has proved to be almost as popular as the overall billionaire's list itself. But here's the question, right?
0: Oh, there's a lot of questions.
1: And they they have added a lot of things to the list on the website, like reflections on why women weren't included and... Explaining our methodology and all of these things. They could
0: just get a new list. Here's
1: the thing, dude. Number 11 on the list is the guy who owns Monster Energy Drinks.
0: Oh, how is that? Okay. Hmm. That's number 11. And and again, The lady
1: who who owns Ross is number 75, and the dude who has Monster Energy Drinks is number 11. Yeah. So I'm sure however you ran those numbers, that's how it ended up. But you should have just looked at that and said- the way we're running these numbers is not great.
0: Yeah, and the list was most innovative people,
1: leaders, most innovative leaders. leaders. Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, there are fewer women business leaders in America, but that doesn't mean there are less. There are fewer innovative.
0: It's very. I just don't understand how an energy drink is innovative. I mean, maybe I'm not seeing it.
1: You need to read their criteria. It's very. <laughs> I don't want to carefully calibrated, Allegra.
0: I can't take any more bad things so, in my life. So
1: the good news is the response was amazing and it brought lots of people together and it generated all this commentary on social media about women who are innovative leaders. Forbes sort of admitted their mistake and the point is a good one. What kind of diversity and representation do you actually have at your office if this list makes it to publication? What kind of policies do you have regarding the way you represent people in your publications?
0: Right. Because where was the fail safe?
1: Exactly. So let's talk about some good news. Okay. The reporters from the New York Times who broke the Harvey Weinstein story have a new book called She Said. Okay. It is not just about Harvey Weinstein. It is, of course, about that. Um, As you know, their initial story led to more coverage of sexual misconduct in Hollywood and elsewhere. They got a Pulitzer Prize in 2018. It also led to lots more women coming forward about Harvey Weinstein and other powerful people began a very nationwide reckoning around sexual misconduct. We are still going through this kind of aftermath, I guess, of Me Too, or maybe we're still in the Me Too movement. I think we're still in it. But... And, and of course, there are plenty of people who have been accused, who have been credibly accused, who have faced absolutely no consequences, including the president of the United States. So it's not like the Me Too movement solved all our problems. We cured sexual harassment. But this book is a great way to amplify and reamplify some of these voices and They interview a lot of people in the book. They do some follow-up interviews. They interview Christine Blasey Ford Mm -hmm. for the book She Said, and they said, we did it because we wanted to address the question of what life was like on the other side. These women had all really deliberated about coming forward, and it's such a hard decision. That's part of why the book is called She Said. It's so unfair in so many ways that it's women who have to do this work. None of these women did anything to get harassed or assaulted, and we wanted to know how they felt about their own decisions to come forward.
0: One, it's also, again, using that old language surrounding sexual assault. He said, she said. Yes. They're both equal.
1: Yes. And I have some more books at the end to share with you as good news.
0: Okay, well, I want to share with you a book that's good news. Oh, God. Have you heard of the Vagina Bible? No. So this is a blog turned into a book by Dr. Jen Gunter. Mm -hmm. She's originally Canadian, but she practices gynecology in California. And she began writing in response to Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah. So uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was selling $66 jade eggs Mm -hmm. that women were supposed to insert in their vaginas. And also she was promoting something called vaginal steaming. Mm Mm-hmm. So this doctor basically was saying, this is not something you should do. This is really bad. So she starts this blog and then she is going to publish a book called The Vagina Bible. And I want to show you the cover. Okay. Because I love it.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. It's just a zipper.
0: So it's a pink zipper. You'll need to look at it. I'm yes. Not, I'm not gonna
1: describe it. It's um It's evocative. It's yeah. So it got a George O'Keefe vibe to it.
0: And the other thing that I really like about this author is that she's on Twitter a lot Mm -hmm. and she is just constantly giving facts (laughs) when people are giving misinformation. Oh yeah.
1: She's so there are, there are several people like this on Twitter who things misleading misinformation starts leaking out and they are like our sentries for misinformation and they will just tweet something to death to make sure that they correct all of the misinformation on a topic. And what
0: has started happening recently is when I'm on Twitter and somebody's giving misinformation about a woman's body or her cycle or whatever, somebody will go paging Dr. Gunter Oh, nice! and start nice. tagging her. Yeah, yeah. So then she can get on and start seeing what's going <laughs> on and correcting I it. Know,
1: I know a history professor who does a similar thing when people misuse historical information. Yes.
0: So, yeah, yeah. So... Highly, highly, highly recommend. Go check it out. Can very, I talk, very interesting. Can I talk about TV and books yet? Can I do two more good news stories and then you can talk about TV and books? Fine. So, two months ago, the LA Times released a news article. And I guess I'm going to put this in good news, bad news. <laughs> in 2019, the majority of Americans now think women are just as competent as men, comma, If not more so. Um, So now based on polling data, 2019, we have topped the 50% threshold. And now a
1: majority of Americans. Just to clarify, the 50% threshold of uh, competence.
0: Competence. So it's a low bar. That's it. It's a low bar. But we cleared it.
1: The majority, now, not everyone.
0: Not everyone.
1: Just more than 50%. Yes.
0: Yes. Of and, Americans yes,
1: think women are just as competent as men. Equally so. Wow. Some people think more. Dude, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not a good news story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you actually read the article. This and, one makes me want to hit myself in the head with a hammer. So uh, American psychologists have been looking at data like this for the past 70 years. And that is why I put this in the good news column. Because... It's been kind of steady for a real long time. Mm -hmm. And then in the last 10 years, there's been a shift. So the data that they're looking at goes all the way back to 1946. And again, I'm not saying it's awesome news.
1: Yeah. No, it's not.
0: But it's better than it was. Um, So the percentage of respondents who just basically said that women should generally be treated like people has also <laughs> risen. Uh, basically, that women are not just adult children, that they're actual adults.
1: I don't know about that. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like... I don't know if we should own property or have access vote. to our
0: own money. Right. And I think that this is an important moment because we do have now a generation of young women. Mm-hmm. Little, 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 little girls. Yeah that are going to grow up in a world that thinks they're as as boys. <laughs> at least equal. At least equal. And we've never had that before. So this doesn't affect us cuz we're too old.
1: We're just incompetent.
0: Yes. But for our daughters, this is good news. I guess so. I got it one more. Have you heard of the supermajority?
1: Yeah, cuz you talk about it all the time. <laughs>
0: If you didn't know me, had you heard about the Supermajority? No, no one would. So the Supermajority is a membership-based organization, and it's nonpartisan. It's intersectional, intergenerational, multiracial, and basically it's just trying to get women into our political system. So they looked at all of these different reasons that women are discriminated against, all of the different challenges women in this country face, And they basically have come up with a platform, if you want to call it that, but that's maybe a little bit too organized, for how to attack this. And so one of the things that they notice is that we have, again, 51% of the population in this country is women, but we rank 78th 78th in the world for political participation amongst our women and representation. That women today are 50% more likely to die in childbirth than their own mothers were. So our mortality has gotten worse. Mm -hmm. And that... Most of our low-wage workers are women, so the majority of people working minimum-wage jobs are women. Another thing that I think is really important about this is the group of women who are leading it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So we have Jim Poo, who is the uh, national director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Alicia Garza, who works with Black Lives Matter. Cecil Richards, former Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. So it's really a who's who Mm -hmm. of people involved And women's issues coming together and trying to be intersectional about it, Mm -hmm. which I really, really appreciate.
1: So they help with participation in the electoral process and general advocacy
0: for women's issues. Right. So what they found was that since 2016, because something happened in November. Not sure what. One in five Americans and in some way, shape, or form, has participated in a protest or a march or something politically since then. That's kind of a high watermark for us yeah. recently. Yeah. Women alone have donated over $100 million to campaigns and causes. And we've had more women try to run for offices than we have before. Yeah. But there was no national organization or system organizing these efforts. So everyone was doing it, but kind of doing it on their own. Okay. And so this is bringing together a lot of those strains and just trying to see what matters to women. And if we're 51 percent of the country, Mm -hmm. how do we make what matters to us a reality? Okay. And I also like that it's not partisan. Yeah. That they are trying to bring in
1: participation and advocacy for issues that are nonpartisan. Yes.
0: Maternal. Nobody wants women to die in childbirth. Right. I hope.
1: Okay. So uh, let's talk about books. All right. There's a new book coming out called No Stopping Us Now, The Adventures of Older Women in American History. Ooh, that sounds good. It is supposed to be a lively, fascinating, eye-opening look at women and aging in America. By the New York Times columnist... Ooh,
0: by Gail Collins. Okay. Ooh, I'm so excited now.
1: Yes. So, it is being reviewed as a lively social history of American women.
0: Oh, I'm getting this. Okay.
1: Yay. So Lindy West who wrote Shrill has a new book coming out. It's called The Witches Are Coming.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: That appeals directly to me. Is it also autobiographical? Do you know? Or is it I mean it's nonfiction. Okay. Yeah. 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 So it's not a
0: they... it's not a novel.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Rainbow Rowell, who wrote uh, who writes young adult novels and who wrote some graphic novels for Marvel, just came out with a graphic novel called Pumpkin Heads. And it is a, like a young adult romance, but it is very pumpkin heads. It is very much something that we would endorse, okay, in terms of its representation of women and character development. It's also just like super cute and amazing. And if you'll let me talk about TV, sure. you know the show Blackish?
0: I'm aware of it. I've never watched it. Has it has a
1: spinoff called Grownish. Didn't know that. It's getting another spinoff called Mixed-ish. Oh, okay. And it's the story of the mom as a child. So it's kind of like... Uh... Don't say
0: it. <laughs> I won't say it.
1: Young Sheldon. Okay, you said it. <laughs> but yeah, but this time it's it's, but it's a, a not... woman of color and, and a mixed race family. and But set in like, what, the 70s or something? 60s, maybe? I mean, I think she's basically like yeah maybe early 80s maybe 70s 80s yeah okay um and the guy from Saved by the Bell's gonna play her dad what guy the main guy what's his name
0: I don't know Mark
1: Paul Gosselar. <laughs> and the last thing I want to tell you about is the the book for the love of men by Liz Plank it is an exploration of toxic masculinity and it is being widely celebrated by male and female reviewers. So we will have more books to talk about in future episodes. But if you want to escape the,
0: the harsh reality the of endless, our lifetimes, the
1: endless <laughs> torrent of bad news that we have brought you, if you want to small escape, sorry. then you can read one of those
0: books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I'm glad that those rape kits are finally getting tested.
1: And I'm Allegra, and I'm looking forward to the day when someone gets around to testing female crash test dummies realistically.
0: We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, and we're sorry, what you'd like to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are.
1: Which is really great, but kind of sad. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at professors, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, professors at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast.
0: Please keep doing all those things, and we hope that you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, don't let the bastards grind you down.